You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Mezzo-soprano Stephanie Blythe is backstage at Lyric. It's not often that we get opportunities to have kind of a one-two punch, like singing Ulrika and Katasha in the same season within, you know, days of each other. In fact, I have a couple of days where I'm singing them back-to-back, which is wonderful. It's a great experience. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. Few debuts at Lyric in recent years have been as eagerly awaited as that of Stephanie Blythe, a favorite artist at the Metropolitan Opera whom millions worldwide have enjoyed in the Mets HD transmissions of Wagner's Das Rheingold, Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice, and Puccini's Tritico. Stephanie's also been heard around the world in both dramatic and comic roles. She'll show both of those sides of her artistry here at Lyric, her debut role will be the fortune teller Ulrika, Madame Arvidsson, in Verdi's Amassed Ball. And she'll be back with us as the formidable Katisha in the new production of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado. Here she is in a conversation about both roles with Lyric Opera broadcast producer Mark Travis. I hope you enjoy it. Let's talk a little bit about Balo first. Okay, um, sure. Who is this woman? Who is Ulrika? Well, you know, we're doing the Swedish version of the play, as I'm sure you know. Mm -hmm. And so I am Ulrika Arvidsson in this, uh, which is quite nice because I've never played it this way. And it's not really that much different except in how she looks visually. In this particular production, she is a lady in tatters. And actually, the the real Ulrika Arvidsson, who was a she was a real person, was a very very famous fortune teller, and she uh, stashed herself in an alley with a load of uh, kind of what we would consider hobos, because that was the best place for her to do her job, and for people to come to her in secret. And um, so we sort of get that feeling with this production. She, you don't really, you don't really know where she is. If she's down below or she's up above, but she's surrounded by a lot of trunks with goodness knows what, and it's it's rather dark and mysterious. Hmm. So, uh, well, there you have it. That's well, it. <laughs> well, and and this music contains a lot of suspense. It mm-hmm. contains. Oh a- yes, it's wonderful, and it, it's it's nice because. Um, What's terrific about this character is that she's a fully realized character. There's no introduction for Ulrika. She enters and she sings this huge aria uh, that's in two big parts, and it's pretty flashy and pretty big and grand. And she's basically all exposition. There's no intro here. So you really just see this character, and she is who she is, and she is the catalyst for what eventually happens in the show. I think I read that you describe this aria as really being something of a a suspension in time. It is absolutely a suspension in time. She's creating an atmosphere, which is what anyone in that that business is going to do. I mean, if you go to see a, a medium or a fortune teller or part of what you are paying for is the ambiance, is the energy. 
And uh, Madame Arvidsson actually was brilliant at doing this. She was known as an incredibly intuitive woman. She was also incredibly smart. And in, in real life, when Gustav came to see her in, in secret, because this actually happened, she knew exactly who, she, who he was because she actually had grown up in the palace. Her, her parents worked at the palace. So she knew who everybody was. But she also had in her back pocket a big collection of informants. So she was very well known because she always got it right. And actually, after Gustav was assassinated, people stopped going to see her because they were so incredibly creeped out that she had predicted that this would happen. As her character starts to change or maybe her nature becomes more evident, Mm -hmm. does the music change as well? Oh, I think then she becomes part of the texture, very much part of the texture. She be, there are a lot of other characters that are introduced. The one thing that you never, ever cease seeing is that it's her room, you know? It's her room, and uh, and she's very, very good at taking a back seat when she needs to and just watching and, see, and seeing what happens. And she says to to the conspirators, you know, why aren't you laughing with everybody else? She's watching... And really taking in everything that's around her, which is why she could make such a good prediction. She's, it's all happening right in front of her. And anybody who um, – I think part of intuition is just paying attention and studying <laughs> what's around you. <laughs> this, of course, is an important moment uh, not only musically but dramatically as well. Yes. I wonder – what advice, if any, did the show's director, uh, Renata Scotto, give you? Oh, I mean, what, what was wonderful about Miss Scotto was that, of course, she has an intimate knowledge of this piece, being someone who is very successful in it herself. And um, she's a remarkably good director in that she is very, very good. When she's sitting out in the audience, she has an excellent eye and really can see pictures in a way that I don't think everybody else can. And also, she has developed an, an, a very great skill set for herself as a performer, which she's very adept at passing along. So, you know, she's been very good with me, helping me to mark the times where there's no movement, where you say everything with what you're not doing. Uh, and I find that that's a very, very refreshing thing. And she is not the kind of director who just directs she doesn't just direct the lines when you're singing the lines. She directs the silences too, which is wonderful. So this, it's been a very, very good experience for me. She spoke at the Discovery Series mm-hmm. about the fact that for her in approaching this, she has to throw out the fact that she is or was a singer. Absolutely. And I think she's very successful doing that. I think that, that that's one of the most difficult things when you are – Uh, When you are a performer that is uh, making a transition into doing something where where you are uh, more behind the scenes, when you're teaching or you're directing, it's hard to put your ego on hold because ego is – in the, I'm speaking of ego in the very best sense of the word and something that every single person on the planet possesses. Uh, when you're able to put your ego on the back burner, that's when you can really make something happen. And I have worked with Ms. Cotto as a student as well. And I can tell you that she's exceptionally good at that. She was very, very good at that when I worked with her as a young artist at the Met. You mentioned the, the Met and, and I want to 
take our listeners back to uh, 1996 mm-hmm. because I think it would be interesting to hear about the opportunity that you had that I think really made your name or made us all aware of your name when you had the chance to step in for another famous oh, mezzo. Oh. <laughs> well, no, that was a wonderful experience. I, I was very fortunate in that it was the middle of winter and Ms. Horn had recently had some knee surgery and when the weather was not great, she chose to stay in, which was the smartest, which was much, much smarter for her to do. She also knew this production intimately as she performed it many times before. And uh, so I, got a, 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 I had a lot of opportunities to work with the principal cast. So when the opportunity came, um, unfortunately, uh, due to the death of, of Henry Lewis uh, that same day, and understandably, she could not go on. I certainly wouldn't would have had the same experience had I been her. It was pretty shocking, but something that I was prepared to do. And I think that that's sort of the key to everything in life is be prepared for when your moment arrives. And that was a great, a very, very exciting moment for me. I'll never forget it. Was it evident for you from an early age that you would be singing bigger repertoire that uh, Wagner and, and Verdi would be Probably, um, yes. I mean, I, I had a loud voice when I first started out. It wasn't really, I didn't have any kind of upper extension whatsoever. I was just loud. But it was impressive enough that people sat up and took notice. I think that, you know, we're, I'm continually working on whenever I have um, any new roles. It's always something exciting and it always expands my my knowledge about my particular voice. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, my teacher and I had a fair idea of where it was going to go. But always before you get somewhere, you have to kind of concentrate on where you are at the moment. Well, and that's – well, I know for a fact that that's very difficult for some people that know that the bigger repertoire is on the horizon for mm-hmm. them. How, how do you bide your time? It's a waiting game. Yeah. It's a waiting game. And I was very fortunate. I was very, very lucky because I had the opportunity to sing a lot of Compromario roles at the Met. I sang as a young artist. Uh, I did some wonderful work with Wolf Trap Opera. I did some concert work and recitals. And I did things that I was given an opportunity to kind of hone my craft in a very old-fashioned way. And it was waiting for the right time to do everything. And it is difficult. It's it's difficult because uh, part of it is waiting for your body to catch up with your brain because we simply, singers, cannot move that quickly. I don't care what anybody says. Yes, very famous singers have had very big successes at 19. Yes, that, that has happened. It's It's not unheard of. But for lower voices... For bigger voices, it's, it is fairly unheard of and there's a reason because it just takes longer for the voice to cook. And when you hear a voice, for instance, I just finished doing uh, Rheingold at the Metropolitan and I was, had the great fortune to be singing with Eric Owens as Albrecht. Whenever anybody asks me about what I consider the perfectly cooked voice, there it is. That's a great, that's a great voice. And here in his early 40s, very early 40s, he is realizing where his voice was intended to go from the very beginning. And he's fresh as a daisy because he didn't sing too much early on and he's singing the right repertoire at the right time. That is smart, smart, smart 
well-cooked voice. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think That's like of, braising. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Oh, sure. <laughs> well, I think of uh, the pleasure of seeing uh, Grubarova make her role debut mm-hmm. in Norma at mm-hmm. the age of 60. Absolutely. There is something to be said for just biding your time. Yeah. And I, I firmly believe that things happen in the right time. Mm-hmm. At least they have for me. You mentioned opening the uh, Met season this year in uh, Rheingold. Mm-hmm. This was also on HD yes. transmission. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Being on HD, mm-hmm. it's very different because there are distractions that you don't have to worry about any other time. And I think what has really struck me in the past several seasons, because I've been doing HD since the second year uh, I was involved in the Tritico, the second year that they started doing HD. And... One of the things that Mr. Gelb has been very, very successful in doing is he's, he's essentially made the Met a broadcast house, where when I first started out, the only time you ever had to worry about a live broadcast was one Saturday afternoon in a run. Now, we go out live just about every show because we go out live for the regular Saturday broadcast. If you're doing an HD, you're going out live for that and you're doing uh, scratch tapings of it beforehand. So there are cameras there for more than one performance. If you're doing opening night, you're putting two live performances out because they also do the plaza casts. And you have serious radio. So, you know, there is, there's a level of pressure as a performer that we didn't have before. And that has been something to work on. That's, you know, not so much vocally, but but mentally. Because it's a very different thing when you know what's going on. It's certainly we, we don't sing less or without, or without as much polish when we're, when we're not singing into a mic. Of course, we're giving, we're trying to give the best performance we can. But there's a totally different level of pressure there that's, you know, takes a little getting used to. I imagine it has to also be a challenge to add maybe a degree of subtlety with the cameras on you to something that is not a subtle art form. Well, I agree 100%. It, it, is, it isn't a subtle art form, and I believe firmly that we're still doing opera here. We're not doing a, we're not doing a television show. We're doing an opera. And I think that for me, it's finding the balance between singing for the audience in the movie theater and making sure that I don't stint on what I'm giving the people who've paid for the the big money for the seats in the house on a given performance. And there's a level of projection that has to happen when you're acting on an opera stage. And people talk about operatic acting as if it's some, you know, something we should be allergic to. Well, you know, an opera stage typically is a heck of a lot bigger than a a theater stage. It's just bigger. It's a bigger space. And you have to fill it, not just vocally, but in in, in your presence. It's a different – it's a completely different discipline. Not better, not worse, just different. And so I think that what we have to do when we're, when we're including HD in the mix is we have to find a way that we are honoring both skills and, and, and both kinds of performance. Speaking about the breadth of performance, uh, you have an incredible stylistic range that encompasses roles by Handel, uh, of course, some of the French repertoire, and you're also celebrated for your comedic gifts, and, and our audiences are going to have the opportunity to experience that firsthand in about six weeks' time when you come in in the Mikado. And, and I think it's interesting that, you know, if we were making an Abbott and Costello movie, we might think of this as 
Gilbert and Sullivan meets Wagner in a sense because, of course, one of your co-stars is Wotan himself, uh, Jim Morris. I, 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 you know what? I have not been so excited about something in a very long time. The notion of doing this role with Jim Morris is just so exciting because – and you are actually – you're speaking to a girl who's played Mrs. Votan with Mr. Morris, which was probably one of the most exciting things I've ever done. I think that that is just genius casting. And, you know, Katashoi is a terrific larger-than-life character. And Gilbert and Sullivan were awfully good to her, I must say. She gets terrific music. She gets a fantastic entrance. She gets to make an entrance in the first act finale, which is just a brilliant finale. And it's a, it's just a wonderful, wide-ranging role. And I, I, I believe that there's a lot in her that's just very, very human, that doesn't get tapped into all the time. And I, and I believe that our director is looking for that. And I'm very happy about that. It's not often that we get opportunities to have kind of a one-two punch, like singing Ulrika and Katasha in the same season within, you know, days of each other. In fact, I have a couple of days where I'm singing them back-to-back, which is wonderful. It's a great experience. Vocally, how do you make that change, or, or is it just variations on it's the just, same core? It's just two different kinds. It's just two styles. The, I mean, in, in terms of range, they're very, very similar. Mm-hmm. And I sing exa- I sing the same way. It's just the style is different. That's all. Is this your first Gilbert and Sullivan? No, I've actually done Catashaw twice before. Okay. So, I'm I'm enjoying coming back to the part very much. Any other uh, plans, uh, Buttercup or some of the other uh, terrific? Who knows? You never know. <laughs> you never know. Finally, uh, before I let you go, I'd like to hear what you think of our city. Is this your first time to Chicago? This is or? actually my uh, my very first time coming to Chicago. My husband and I are, are staying here for, well, you know, several months doing both of these. And I uh, we're very delighted to find that this is an incredibly uh, people-friendly city, mm-hmm. more so than many cities that we've been to. Um, it's very beautiful. The architecture is fantastic. We're staying in a building in a, on a very high floor with a great view of the city, which is which is gravy. Um, it's a very easy to, to easy city to get around. The food is incredible, and the people are just very genuine and incredibly friendly. And I, uh, as I have said to several people in the last few days, I have never heard an ill word. Uh, spoken from the lips of any singer who comes to sing here in, in uh, at Chicago Lyric. This is one of the most beloved opera houses in the country. And I think that the city is one of the reasons that that is so. So I'm very excited to be here and making uh, my debut. And I'm I'm thrilled for opening night. Wonderful. Both well, of them. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And, Not at uh, all. Toy, toy, toy. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.